This hearing will come to order. Let me welcome you all to the seventh hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific and International Cybersecurity Policy for the 114th Congress, uh, and our second hearing in 2016. Thank you both for being here. I want to thank Ranking Member Cardin and, of course, uh, his work on the full committee as well. Uh, it's, a, it's a heavy schedule that you're carrying, so thank you, and thanks for your cooperation as we continue to look into these important issues and the work together that we're doing on this subcommittee. This subcommittee has been very productive and a lot of great work that we've been able to do together, so thank you, Senator Cardin, for that. We've got a full slate this morning with a full committee hearing on nominees to follow at 1130. I hope everybody stays for that, uh, and I know there's a lot of family here as well, so uh, thank you and welcome to the committee. And so I'll keep my opening remarks short on the first half of this hearing. Today's hearing uh, at 10.30 discusses the issues concerning the South China Sea and comes on the heels of a very important ruling that could reshape the Asia-Pacific region and global security in general. Yesterday, an international tribunal issued an important ruling in favor of our allies, the Philippines, and against the People's Republic of China. The panel ruled that China breached the sovereign rights of the Philippines with regard to the maritime disputes between those two nations and invalidated China's sovereignty claims over almost the entirety of the South China Sea, uh, called the Nine Dash Line. In the last several years, China has significantly upped the ante and undertaken a massive effort to reclaim a number of the disputed features in the South China Sea and to militarize these islands, these features. According to the Department of Defense, since Chinese land reclamation efforts began in December of 2013, China has reclaimed more than 2,900 acres of land and has deployed artillery, built aircraft, runways and buildings, and positioned radars and other equipment. While the United States is not directly a party to this dispute and takes no position on the sovereignty claims among the various claimants, this ruling is important to our national security for several reasons. First, the South China Sea is one of the world's most strategically important commercial waterways in the world. Almost 30% of the world's maritime trade transits the South China Sea annually, including approximately $1.2 trillion in shipborne trade and shipborne trade bound for the United States. Second, the ruling reinforces the rights of our military to operate freely in the region, utilizing our longstanding international rights of innocent passage and transit on the high seas, the rights long established by international law. Since October 2015, the United States Navy has conducted three freedom of navigation operations in the area to assert these very rights and to challenge China's groundless sovereignty claims. Last month, I attended the Shangri-La Dialogue along with a number of my colleagues, and we heard a tremendous amount of concern from regional leaders not only about the South China Sea, but also whether the United States can endure as a regional and global leader. There should be no mistake. The South China Sea and what happens there is thus an important test of American leadership and our ability to support our close allies in the face of aggression that is outside of international norms. So today, we have two very highly uh, distinguished former officials, Admiral Blair and Dr. Campbell, to help us gauge the latest developments in U.S. policy options following the ruling. With that, I would like to recognize a distinguished ranking member for his comments, Senator Cardin. Well, thank you, Chairman Gardner. I, uh, it's a pleasure to work with you on this subcommittee. Your, your leadership has been uh, very much important for our national security and raising the importance of the Asian Pacific area to U.S. interests. So I thank you. And of course, the maritime security issues are very much part of that. I, I'm going to abbreviate my statement and put, put it in for the record, but let me start by um, uh, quoting from the Baltimore Sun editorial this morning, because uh, you raise a very good point, and that is the ruling uh, under the tribunal was not unexpected. Uh, China's claims are hard to understand under the rule of law. The United States, as you point out, takes no position in regards to the legal claims, but we do take a strong position against unilateral action and to use rule of law and diplomacy to resolve these issues. And we will not only continue to promote that policy, but we also have legal commitments of other countries as to relate uh, to those commitments. And we uh, also um, have uh, our in, uh, rights in regards to the navigation on the on China seas. So China has to make a decision. They have to make a decision as to whether they're going to adhere to the rule of law uh, and be a world leader of res with, with, with great respect or whether they're going to go their own course. So the Baltimore Sun said this morning, China's immediate response was to double down on its stance and officials have been holding out the threat of military maneuvers for months. In the long run through, the country and the world would be better off if China took this, this chance to show it can indeed be a good global neighbor and leader. 
and I couldn't agree more. You know, 30 years ago, we were debating whether or not China would rise to be a major power. Well, they're a major power. There's no question about that. What kind of power are they going to be? And to me, this is their key test and key moment. Will China help to support peace and stability in Asia, or will they seek to overturn the order? Will China become a trade partner committed to enforcing international law, or will it see 19th century commercialism behavior and the flouting of international norms? Will China open up its conduct, uh, allowing its people to express their views, or will they continue down a path of repression? These are issues that I think are very much tied to how they respond uh, to the tribunal decision. And last point I would make, Mr. Chairman, I was asked a question this morning whether we're somewhat hypocritical in, in criticizing China since we're not a member of the Law of the Sea Treaty. I think we should be a member of the Law of the Sea Treaty. I think it would help the United States. We've had hearings before this committee where it was lopsided with our, uh, our generals saying it's important to our national security. Uh, we have the Arctic areas that are opening up more and more uh, navigable rights, and we're not at the table, the only Arctic country not to be a party to the uh, law of the sea. Uh, I, I, we, we disadvantage American businesses who need the, the bed uh, mineral rights on, on, the, on, on the seabeds. We should be a member. But America stands for the rule of law, and we will continue to stand for the rule of law, and we will continue to pursue our claims under rule of law. And we are, uh, have an obligation to point out uh, that China must adhere to the rule of law if it's going to have credibility internationally on these issues. Thank you, Senator Cardin. And for the information of the, the witnesses and uh, the attendees here today, there's a vote scheduled at 11 o'clock. We'll continue the hearing during the vote. We'll just uh, uh, have people go back and forth to the vote and chair the take over the, the hearing. Uh, I would uh, kindly ask the witnesses to keep the remarks to five minutes. Your full statements will be entered into the record. Our first witness is Admiral Dennis Blair, who currently serves as Chairman of the Board and CEO of Sasakawa Foundation USA. During his distinguished 34-year Navy career, Admiral Blair served on guided missile destroyers in both the Atlantic and Pacific fleets and commanded the Kitty Hawk Battle Group. From 1999 to his retirement from the Navy in 2002, Admiral Blair served as Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Pacific Command, the largest of the combatant commands. As Director of National Intelligence from January 2009 to May 2010, Admiral Blair led 16 national intelligence agencies, managed a budget of $50 billion, and provided integrated intelligence support to the President, Congress, and operations in the field. Welcome, Admiral Blair. Thank you for your service to our nation, and we look forward to your testimony. Thank you very much. Good to be here and good to turn on my talk button. Um, let me use my short oral remarks to describe the fundamental components of a successful American policy in the South China Sea, one that combines our diplomacy, our military activities, and our relations with the other countries in the region. What we see playing out now in East Asia is China's third attempt to expand its eastern, its maritime border. The first attempt, which has gone on for decades, has been to add Taiwan to its territory. And this attempt has included some Chinese tactics that are now familiar to us, unyielding rhetoric, cartography, Taiwan is always shown as part of China on Chinese maps, international diplomatic competition, China goes around to other countries in the world to try to sign them up to recognize its claim and to reject Taiwan's assertions. The second attempt was the Senkaku Islands, and again, China used a variety of means to advance its claim and extend its maritime border. The use of its fishing fleet and its Coast Guard vessels, and rather than its military uh, naval uh, vessels, the use of offshore drilling rigs in disputed waters, punitive economic measures, cutting off the supply of rare earth metals to Japan. Now, Chinese activities in recent years in the South China Sea represent the third attempt of China to extend its maritime borders, and they involve a full array of tactics. It has add some new ones, naval blockades of the vessels of other countries around disputed islands, land reclamation, the installation of logistics facilities, potential military facilities. So what's going on in the South China Sea today is not new in concept for China or the region, but the geography, the number, the military inferiority of other claimants, and American history in the region make it all different and require a tailored policy from the United States. We need to fashion a response to Chinese aggression that supports our basic interest and is tailored to these circumstances. What has worked in the past to restrain Chinese aggression on its maritime border has been patient diplomacy along with the establishment of military deterrence. Now, the Taiwan Relations Act provided a good blueprint for American actions on that attempt by China, a buildup of Taiwan's own defense capability through assistance, 
American development and demonstration of the ability to su support Taiwan if called on, persistent diplomacy with China to emphasize other areas of relations and to make them understand the high cost of aggression in, in Taiwan. For the Senkakus, the same pattern has proved successful with a strong ally Japan, Japanese development of its own military capabilities to defend its interests, American declarations of support to Japan, persistent diplomacy by both Japan and the United States to keep overall relations with China as positive as possible while emphasizing our interests. The South China Sea has similarities to these two earlier cases, but also important differences. The area is larger, more conflicting claimants, and they are much, more, much weaker than is China. However, American policy should mix the same ingredients of diplomatic patience, support for allies and partners, and direct military protection of our own interests that has contributed successfully to stabilizing the other two regions. Now, until about a year ago, our policy was wandering. We chanted that we took no position on the territorial disputes themselves, we made few military deployments to the region, and we simply urged restraint on all parties. And this feckless set of policies did nothing but encourage China to try to ex expand its influence. But even without a clear <clears throat> U.S. policy, China's aggressive moves were not very successful. Although China was expanding the capability of the islands it occupied in the region, they added very little to its military capability in the event of serious conflict. They had the effect of stoking suspicion and distrust of China and sent these countries to the United States, Japan, and other, and other more powerful countries for support. And they offered access to their bases and ports. None of these countries made any territorial concession to China. Within the past year or so, we are seeing the emergence of a more robust American policy along the lines of what we have seen work previously. We've made it clear that there are vital U.S. interests at stake, our ability to operate air and naval forces freely in, in the region. We have peacefully deployed significant major military forces there. We have provided, we have started to provide support to other claimants in the region, the Philippines and Vietnam. The policy component that is lacking is the establishment of our bottom line. That is, we have not made it clear where we stand on any of the territorial claims of China and the, other, and the other parties. And until we do, it will be difficult to relate our military deployments to our overall foreign policy and diplomatic objectives. I believe that the <clears throat> issue on which we can clearly draw a bottom line would be at Scarborough Shoal. Make it clear that the U.S. will support the Philippines to oppose Chinese aggression there, and if necessary, by military force. The decision yesterday of the Permanent Court of Arbitration has provided a clear legal foundation for the United States to take a position. I would also add, echoing uh, Senator Cardin, that the decision makes it very clear that the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea is very much in the American interest, and I hope that this committee can move it f forward again. Our objective is not to pick a fight with China, not to contain it, but simply to set credible limits to Chinese military coercion, to encourage it to pursue its objectives by peaceful means. No matter what decisions are made, China will remain powerful in the region. Peace in East Asia has been a tremendous benefit both to the United States and the countries there, including China, and it will take smart and, <coughs> and persistent American policies to maintain it. Thank you. Thank you, Admiral Blair. And our second witness is the Honorable Kurt Campbell, who currently serves as chairman of the board for the Center for a New American S Security. From 2009 to 2013, he served as the Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs, where he played a key role in developing this administration's Pivot to Asia or Rebalance strategy. Dr. Campbell also previously served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Asia and the Pacific and as Director on the National Security Council staff. In 2013, Secretary Hillary Clinton awarded him the Secretary of State's Distinguished Service Award, the nation's highest diplomatic honor. Dr. Campbell also served as an officer in the U.S. Navy Reserves, serving on surface ships, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and in the Na Chief of Naval Operations Strategic Advisory Unit. Welcome, Dr. Campbell, and thank you very much for being here and look forward to your testimony today. Thank you very much. <clears throat> I'd ask that my full uh, testimony is submitted for the record, as you indicated. Um, Objection. Uh, I also want to thank uh, your excellent staff, who I think provide enormous service uh, to you and the nation. I will just say, just before we get started, if you will allow me, Senator Gardner, I actually think the most important thing in this hearing has already happened, and I just don't think people realize how much we appreciate the graciousness and respect with which you and Senator Cardin have interacted. It sends an enormous message of goodwill that is appreciated in a very divisive, difficult time. So I want to personally thank you for how you've run the committee, and also want to thank you for coming out to Shangri-La and making clear American strategic commitment in the Asia-Pacific region. 
Um, uh, I also want to thank uh, uh, Admiral Blair, if I can, for his service and the opportunity to serve with him. Uh, when he was uh, serving out in Hawaii, he taught me something very important. Once we were talking about something, and he took, he turned to me and he said, "Kurt, you know, sometimes it's better to ask forgiveness than permission." And so, something to keep in mind as we struggle uh, bureaucratically occasionally. So, again, thank you very much for this opportunity. Very quickly, I'll just make a couple of quick points because I know you're going to want to get to questions and answer um, uh, about the ruling uh, itself. I think some elements uh, of it were expected, to, but to be honest it's much more resounding, it's much more decisive than I think any of us anticipated. Uh, it's unanimous quality, it's very clear statement about uh, 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 how to think about the South China Sea really invalidates very, virtually every aspect of Chinese claims uh, around the 9-dash or previously the 11-dash line. So I think I agree very much with what has been said in terms of this is an important statement of international law. And I would also underscore, not only have there been good statements from the United States, but many of our allies in other countries have chimed in to support this effort. I would uh, draw your attention in particular to what the Australians have said most recently, in addition to other countries in uh, Northeast Asia. I think this sends a very clear signal of warning and care to Chinese interlocutors as they contemplate next steps. I also just want to say, a lot of people say, well, what, how can you trace American strategic purpose in the world? Is there any constants? And I would simply say to you, if you look at the issue of preservation of uh, maritime commerce, freedom of the seas, freedom of navigation, the first use of American power abroad uh, was in the Barbary Pirates in the 17th century. You can draw a line from there to here essentially what's going on in the South China Sea. And there are others that would suggest, and I think Admiral uh, Blair and you all, uh, uh, Senator Cardin, uh, Gardner and Senator Cardin, very forcefully made clear that this is not some distant backwater. This is a very important strategic waterway, waterway in many respects, more important than the Gulf of Hormuz because it involves not only the transshipment of energy resources, but also most of the manufacturing goods that are moving across Asia more generally. So in fact, no country has a greater interest in the peace and stability of that arena than China in addition to the United States. This ruling in many respects is about a fundamental struggle uh, uh, that is ongoing in the Asia-Pacific region right now, in which we play a key part. What the United States and other countries have done has created an operating system in Asia, right? And that operating system uh, is composed of many facets, freedom of navigation, trade, uh, peaceful resolution of disputes. Uh, it has benefited all the countries in the region, and it has led to the most dramatic period of economic growth in our history, right? And that's a 21st century system that we seek to adapt and develop over time. It has been very good for every country, including China. Now, what we have seen in China of late are some tendencies to want to go back to really a 19th century spheres of influence approach in which they demark uh, arenas and areas as no-go areas or belonging to them, as Admiral Blair has indicated. That's profoundly not in our interests and I believe fundamentally are actually not in China's interest over the long term because it will undermine the very system that has led to enormous prosperity and peace. So I just want to conclude by saying when people ask, well, show us evidence of success. I think what we, have, what we are experiencing, this multifaceted effort, which is bipartisan in quality, Republicans and Democrats, the administration and others, underscored at the uh, Shangri-La Dialogue, have seen many elements that are coming to play. First, very strong statements of American purpose, that it is in the national interest to sustain freedom of navigation, peaceful resolution of disputes making clear that these issues are raised and discussed in an arena with allies and friends, making sure allies speak out independently, uh, also taking steps to build more partnerships with countries in the region that are threatened by these steps. What we're doing in Vietnam and the Philippines is very important, and to make sure that our attention does not wane. We have difficulties here in the United States. 
I will tell you, uh, gentlemen, that the issue that worries Asians the most right now is not what's going on in China, but what's going on in Washington. They are most concerned about the conduct of our, of our uh, election and whether we are going to sustain our commitment to our allies, our defense, and trade going forward. Uh, that is going to be critical for us uh, as we proceed into the 21st century. Thank you very much. I'll stop there, Senator. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Campbell. And I know we're approaching the time for the vote, so I'll keep my question short so that we can get to Senator Cardin and other members who are uh, attending today. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of discussion that we have to have in light of the tribunal decision yesterday, this very strong decision uh, that uh, goes to the very heart of a rules-based system and a rules-based order of international law and nations that are obviously rising powers and a power uh, in and of themselves, whether they are going to be a part of that rules-based system or, or flout those rules and uh, continue to ignore uh, the very law that they agreed to. Uh, and so I want to get into what you believe uh, the next steps are for China. But before I do that, uh, I want to just ask this question. What consequence? Uh, should be carried out right now uh, for China's activities? Because if you just have a ruling that's ignored, it's only as good as the paper that uh, they issued in the press release yesterday. But what consequence, what act of, of reparation should take place for violation of the sovereign rights? I think some people don't <clears throat> understand the price that China is already paying by the actions that it's been taking. Uh, when it began these individual uh, island reclamations and drilling rig deployments and maritime militia uh, deployments, it sort of expected the other countries of the region to roll over and, and say, oh, China, you are big. Uh, here, go ahead and take this island. Uh, we'll we'll uh, uh, cede this sovereignty. Nothing of the sort has happened. In fact, uh, what's happened is the countries of the region have uh, begun to spend more on their own, own defense. They've reached out to other countries like uh, the United States and, uh, and, and Japan. Uh, and China is paying an e extremely heavy price. Militarily, uh, these countries have opened up access to the United States. If you ask me as the former Commander-in-Chief of the Pacific Command, which would I rather have, five islands that have air bases or access to seven air bases in the Philippines, ports and air, airfields in Vietnam, as far as serious military capability in the region, I would take the uh, access that we have gained from the other countries in reaction to China's relatively vulnerable buildups every time. So China's paid a high price. Now it's paying one more price with this discrediting of the nine-dash line, which has basically been the basis of, uh, of all of the uh, claims that they've made. So the, the, the hill is getting steeper and steeper for China. And my experience with the Chinese is they're practical people. When it gets too steep, they'll think of something, something else. I think if you look at Chinese actions over the last uh, six, seven months, they in fact have been tapering off from the aggressive, uh, from the aggressive activities of the last year or two. So uh, let's hope that, uh, that in the rhetoric of the other countries, the United States, the Philippines, and Vietnam, we, we leave China some room to back itself off the ledge in its, own, in its own way, and China realizes in its interest that there's another way to support its interest uh, rather than these blatant, naked, uh, military, militarily-based aggressive uh, of, of forces. And if that happens, then we have something to, to work with. So I think we have to uh, watch China's reaction. If not, uh, then we can take some, some stiffer actions ourselves. Mm -hmm. Dr. Campbell, if you'd like. I really like Admiral Blair's answer, and I, I would uh, stand behind him on that. I think that's good, it's prudent, it's careful. Th there are other costs as well, though, that are being paid. Um, so, you know, we often think about our own challenges and troubles here in the United States. President Xi is trying to do a lot of things right now in China. Uh, he has essentially dismantled collective leadership in China. He makes all the decisions. He's involved in a massive effort to try to retool the Chinese economy, to, to move it more from just export-led, state-driven growth to more consumer-led. Very hard challenge. It's going to take years. Should be taking all of his time, frankly. A lot of party. If issues he's trying to work on. And I think it's undeniable, but he's trying to use nationalism to spurt, to kind of, you know, propel his efforts forward. And I think this is actually part of this effort. One of the things that is striking, and I think those of you who visited China know this, you can talk to people across the board, hardliners, Democrats, others, they're pretty much uniform of view around these issues. They take the Chinese line on the South China Sea. So, 
I think in a way she tried to use these to, to basically assist in the nationalist drive in his own domestic efforts. But now I think in some respects it has, he's now faced both international opposition from the tribunal, strong support from others, and the kinds of steps that Admiral Blair indicates. I don't think it has gone in the directions that he had hoped. Very few countries are better at changing uh, uh, approaches carefully. They may not signal it in public. They might not say, you know what, our bad, we're gonna move away. But I think what Admiral Blair indicates is the case uh, here. I think over time, China will start to adjust its position because they will realize that right now it's not in their best strategic interests. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Admiral Blair, I understand what you said, that China did not anticipate that the regional and international resolve would be as strong as it has been in reaction to their unilateral activities. But uh, they're not changing their actions. They are continuing uh, to make their assertions. They certainly have seen very um, direct uh, military actions in regards to the China seas. So I'm not sure that the international reaction has changed the calculation in China. Second point is that now with the ruling from the uh, tribunal, there is, a, a, I think, a, a different, we're playing on a different level now. We, we have a, a ruling. Uh, it's going to be likely ignored, at least in the short term, by China. And if their statements are accurate, they will probably do something that will uh, demonstrate their sovereignty over this area by additional building or activities or military actions. So I'm not sure they have paid a price for their activities uh, to date. And I can tell you that the countries of the region, this is what they focus on. This is their issue, maritime security. Uh, for the United States, obviously, it's a critical point for, for many, many reasons. Couple that with the fact that ASEAN, an organization that was set up at the end of the interregional Southeast Asia conflicts uh, is being pretty much discredited by China. What activities, well, how should the United States and our alliance partners respond to the next wave of activities that are likely to come from China that disregards the ruling uh, that we saw yesterday? Well, uh Senator, the, the ruling only took place uh, yesterday, and so it's a little quick for China to react, and I think it's But they knew, they knew it was coming yesterday. They're prepared. Well, clearly what they were prepared for was a much more favorable ruling than what they got, and, and, uh, and if you look at their press, press they statement... They should hire different lawyers if they thought they were going to get different results. Well, um, they're not the only country that has right. wish-think as part right. of its policy sometimes, but, uh, but uh, no, so they, the talking points that they're running out now were written a week ago, could have been written a month ago. Uh, you, you, uh, it's, I think it's important to look at actions rather than the, uh, rather than the immediate uh, well, the, we the have, immediate we rhetoric. We have actions. We have uh, military airfields that have been built. We have rocks that have been turned into military assets. We have... Uh, well, you need to be careful there, Senator, because uh, those Facilities in the uh, Spratleys, as opposed to the Paracels, which are up north and much closer to China, are potential military capabilities, 10,000-foot runways, POL storage, ports, logistics facilities. But President Xi, when he was here last September, said he has no intention of militarizing those, which means the deployment of uniformed forces and military equipment there. And so far, that's been true with China. I, I saw a news report this morning that... Uh, Aircraft uh, visited uh, some of those uh, Spratly Islands, but they were civil aircraft. They were not uh, military aircraft. The one military aircraft that's been there in the past uh, nine months was for a medevac uh, to take a uh, to take a uh, an injured uh, or, or but sick they've person. They changed off. the landscape to have Chinese presence on an area that is contested. Th so those were those. I don't want to be an apologist for China, but those were features which China had already occupied. They made them bigger. But they, ch they changed them. 
Yeah, they made them bigger and they put potential military uh, capabilities on them, but they have not militarized them in the sense of putting anti-aircraft batteries. And, and how long would that take to change? Well, it hadn't happened yet, mm -hmm. uh, which is, uh, I think, sig significant. But if you are a country in that region, knowing what they've done there as far as not only jeopardizing your territorial uh, claims, but also giving a beachhead in the event that they decide to be even more aggressive, wouldn't you, as you were, if you were the military advisor to that country, tell, tell them to, that they're at a higher risk today than they were before? Well, I'd pretty much do what the Philippines and Vietnam have done, which is uh, invite the United States to uh, use our bases that are on land and much more powerful and, and uh, capable. No, I, I, I don't mean to shortcut your answer. You're, you're saying there's nothing direct you would think that the United States and our willing partners should be considering other than what we've done in the past? No, as I said in my, in my statement, I think we should be prepared to take military action in Scarborough Shoal if China should undertake some of the same activities that it's undertaken in Subi Reef and Quarter and Reef and the others that it has, mm -hmm. has taken draw the line, uh, draw the line uh, there. I think we should be taking advantage of the, the ruling to, uh, to foster a multilateral um, uh, solution of the uh, settlement of the contending claims with or without China, and then we should use our military power to support that uh, region. Right now, we're we don't have a specific uh, a specific position so that we can use our military power to support our diplomacy. We just, we just do freedom of navigation exercises, which are fine, military maneuvers. I think we need to draw some specific lines and then encourage China to, uh, to compromise on some of its objectives as they have in other regions, as I said. Mm -hmm. Senator, could I just uh, amplify just to, on the things to really be concerned by? I, I think Admiral Blair is giving you a very good laydown, and, and the key here is some of the steps that China has taken are on islands that they've held for decades, right? The question really from here on out is are they going to take steps on islands that they have not had previous uh, control or access to, and that's why that there's so much focus on the Scarborough Shoal. If I may, and just something to think about, the real issues that I think the United States has to be concerned by are challenges to American or international overflight over this area or ships that their uh, uh, passage is contested. Those are the areas where the United States has to be much firmer and much clearer, and we need to get other partner countries to exercise the rights of free passage and uh, open access in a manner that makes clear that this determination to try to turn the South China Sea, it's not so much the island dots, it is the effort to turn it into territorial waters that denies uh, international open access of the kind that we have underwritten for decades and it is the very base of international trade and commerce. Just so I understand, uh, the Obama administration has been doing that. They've been yeah. doing, are, are yeah. you suggesting they need to be, uh, to do more? No, I, in, in fact, I, and, and thank you, Senator Cardin, I think you missed a little bit when you were out. I think I would suggest that this is a, success, a bipartisan success, that um, what you see are uh, multiple efforts led by the administration but supported elsewhere that involve diplomacy, that involve working with their allies, building up partner capacity, taking a very strong position in international organizations, supporting the rule of law, and also articulating publicly what it is that we stand for in terms I of freedom. I understand verbiage. I'm talking about action. When you, when you, when you do flyovers, yeah. when you put our, our vessels in, in the, the territorial waters themselves to challenge being uh, their free navigation, that's, that's action. Yeah. Very much. I, I think um, I would suggest, and I'd like to hear Admiral Blair on this, the real thing here is to make this a normal element of our practice, that it's not considered something we do, uh, you know, occasionally. It has to be um, uh, exercised regularly. It has to become a common feature of our foreign, uh, uh, forward engagement and deployment. Thank you. Senator Johnson. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, I guess. Um, you know, Mr. Campbell, as you were talking about, you know, further integration in the world economy has been incredibly beneficial for China. 
as it has been for Russia. And I guess my question really is, based on that fact, I just do not understand why. You know, why does Russia engage in its aggression? Why is China engaged in such provocative action? When I agree with you, this, is, this undermines, I think, their long-term objectives of, of becoming more of a consumer society, becoming really a more healthy economy. Uh, you, you mentioned nationalism. Uh, I think, to a certain extent, that drives Putin's calculation as well. But again, why are they doing this when a cooperative attitude within the South China Sea, from my standpoint, would be short-term and long-term more beneficial to them? Can, can you ex explain that to me, B both gentlemen? I guess Admiral well, I, I think, uh, Senator, what they, what they want is both. They, they, want to, uh, they want to have their strong control of what this area that they call the first island, island chain in which all military activity is done with their permission. Uh, there, there's no, there are no reconnaissance flights. There, there are no sur survey flights. And they want to have a strong consumer economy that uh, other countries will, will deal with. So not unlike other countries, they are looking for the best of both worlds as long as they can get it. And frankly, uh, until very recently, they've been able to, to get it. And so, so, so that, that'd be my next question then. Why do they think they can get away with what they're doing? Because they have for several years in, in the past. Look, look at- uh, So, so we, we have not kind of shown the strength and resolve to deter their actions. Since we haven't set any in individual limits, we've had this sort of general, uh, we don't take a position, but don't you do anything, and they've operated below the level level of that in order to, to make uh, gains. I think the final thing is, uh, I, I think the character of a country's international po policy, there's uh, a large uh, resemblance to its internal policy, and in, inside China, as you know, power is what controls, not laws, not precedents. If you have the power, then you, you get the best, best of everything, and China applies the same approach to its uh, relations with its uh, neighbors, and to the extent that it can be successful, it's gonna to continue to do it. So, Mr. Gay, I'd like to have you answer, but I do wanna reserve, reserve time, because I, I wanna ask what position should we take, but Mr. Yeah. Campbell responded uh, to my first question. So, uh, just to answer a couple of things, if I can, Sir John, it's a very important question. I, the, the interesting thing, when you sit down and actually really discuss with China interlocutors about this, one of the first issues they will raise is the Monroe Doctrine, right? And they'll say, well, what about your role in your own hemisphere? And of course, our answer was, or is, that was then, this is now, a very different period for a different kind. That is sometimes unpersuasive to Chinese friends. And it is not uncommon that rising great powers, particularly when they are authoritarian-led, seek these spheres of influence. And they believe that they are ultimately beneficial and they protect um, a, uh, a ruling elite that is anxious about their legitimacy. And I, I just think that is not uncommon I, I do also want to say one of the things that we have, to, what's very different here than the Cold War is that every single one of these countries, yes, they are working more with the United States. We should be under no illusions. They all want a better relationship with China because of dramatic commercial interests and ties. And I will say at the root of this really is the United States has to do much more in the Asia Pacific region. And if you look back, the dominant issues of this period historically, will not be Iraq, will not be Afghanistan, will not be all the blood and treasure that we have spent. It will be the rise of Asia. And we are not nearly focused on this enough. And that the lion's share of the history of this century is gonna be written in the 20, 21st century. Our executive branch, our Congress, our big institutions have not yet recognized that, have not really made the rebalance or the pivot a way of American uh, engagement in the world. So what should our position be and what action should we engage in then? Admiral Blair. Yeah, Senator, I, I, uh, I would uh, talk a little bit differently about our maritime interests in the, in the region. You've heard uh, several people at this hearing talk about the volume of shipping that goes, goes through there. China has no interest in interfering with that, that shipping. Most of it goes to China. Anyway, uh, uh, short of total war, no country has figured out yet how to apply selective pressure to uh, shipping lanes anyway, so it's Im impractical. What's really important is the American ability to ma maneuver its military forces in that region of the world, which we've done ever since 1898. It's basically been in support of 
of ensuring that uh, that uh, a power hostile to the United States or destabilizing to the region doesn't gain ascendance. We've thrown our weight in, whether it was uh, against Japan when it uh, militarily took the region, whether it was in Vietnam when, uh, at least at the opening opening uh, part of it, uh, we thought that this was a, an expansion of worldwide uh, communism. So our overriding interest is to be able to use our military forces to support our interests in that region. China challenges that uh, with a very expansive interpretation of what an EEZ means. To China, an EEZ means that you control the military activities within, within there. Uh, they object violently to our reconnaissance flights. When I was Pacific Commander-in-Chief was when we had the EP-3 incident when they actually uh, ran into uh, one of our one of our uh, air aircraft, a, a Chinese fighter did. They cut cables of our survey, survey ships. Uh, so to, I think what we have to do is have a steady, robust American military exercise and, and uh, operating presence in the, in the South China Sea to show that, uh, that China will not be able to restrict that. That's, so, so our that's position, number one. So our position should be to state that clearly, this is what we're going to do, and then we need to do it, and this will be a good time to start in a Just robust do it. fashion. Yes, sir, and I, and I think that's more important than whether we run a particular destroyer within three miles or four miles of a particular rock. I think it's the fact that the United States freely operates its air, naval, and if necessary, its ground forces in that part of the part of the world, and uh, and we don't need anybody's permission to do it, and we have allies and friends we support there. So that's kind of number one. So state it clearly and operate regularly. Senator, yeah. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Uh, Senator, but I just underscore, we're doing that. So, uh, and we just should continue it going forward. I will also just say, one of the big deterrents that we have not discussed is that if there is tensions or conflicts in the South China Sea, the first thing that will happen is insurance premiums for shipping will go through the roof, right? That's very bad for China and very bad for other shipping and receiving nations. It's the last thing that they want to see. And so that, among everything else, really animates a lot of actions. Just in time, good. Well, um, first of all, thank you both for being here. This is actually a, a pretty big moment in, uh, in international relations, I think, for our country. I think you would both agree with that. For people that are gonna watch or thinking about this issue, the first thing, and you, you, I think you both talk, touched on this in your statements, is you know, that freedom of navigation in the seas has been the linchpin of this economic growth and prosperity that we've seen in the post-Second World War era. And that's particularly true of the Asia-Pacific region. Um, and the South China Sea in particular, I believe, the last time I checked, is a place where a significant percentage of uh, global commerce is now transiting through. So this matters in real time to people in this country. In essence, many, I guarantee you, there are things in this room right now that came to this country as it transited through the South China Sea and vice versa for our exports. So this is incredibly important. And what China is basically challenging is that world order. What China's basically doing here is they are challenging the idea that there is such a thing as freedom of navigation. They've challenged this particular sea for a long time. If you look at their passports for a long, long time, that nine-dash line was on there. They have claimed that they own this, among other places, for a very long time. Now they're beginning to act on it. And so um, that's the first part. Now let me preface this by saying I have no quarrel with the Chinese people, who I believe are great people, who by and large have the desire to move forward with prosperity and, and with their lives, and we engage with them constantly. I have uh, no quarrel with China. I have a big quarrel with the Chinese Communist Party, which I believe is more interested in the future security of the Chinese Communist Party than they are of the nation itself. This is a country who views all their neighbors as tributary states that need to be subservient to China. This is a country that views the United States as a declining power. They make the argument to the countries in the region that America cannot be counted on to live up to its security assurances. And that's why this is such a critical moment. And by the way, this is also illustrative of another point, and that is all these international things that China signs on to, they're signatories to the Law of the Sea Treaty. They agreed to this process by which they lost under and now they view as illegitimate. So how can we trust them on anything they sign when they're willing to ignore it? This is a big, big problem. And, uh, and I think, and I hope that the position of the administration and the next administration will be that we will never accept these arguments, that there will be no part of these illegitimately claimed areas that we will not sail through and challenge that we will never accept it as a matter of course, whether it's the air defense zone that they've claimed or this illegitimate uh, claims that they make now. And Mr. Campbell, you were one of the architects of the so-called pivot to Asia. 
and you've written extensively about this policy. So I would just ask you, what is, and I think you've touched on this already, but what is your assessment of the success of this policy after five years after it was announced? And specifically, and, and maybe what needs to be done next? And on that point, I wanna make one editorial comment in addition to the two and a half minute editorial comment I just made, which is this is why the defense sequester is so crazy. It's nuts because we need to be able to fund our ability to project power in the region because in the end, all the diplomatic rhetoric, all the speeches from the Senate are worthless if we do not have the physical capability to deliver on our security assurances that we've made to our allies in the region, uh, both in South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, and others. But what is your assessment, Mr. Campbell, of the state of affairs on the pivot to Asia, and what is the next iteration of it moving forward as we go into a new administration and a new Congress? Uh, thank you very much, Senator. I appreciate the question, and thank you for your service. I will say, I don't, I don't mean any, any harm by this, but I will say what I appreciated very much is how open your office was to us. You'd ask us to come up to be briefed about Asia, asked very good questions. You challenged us a lot, but you also were very respectful. I actually would say one of the most important things that we're going to need to sustain to be effective in Asia is to maintain a bipartisan commitment. And that's incredibly difficult, but I think you all, each in your own way, have laid out the enormous American stakes in what's involved here and the need to do more. Look, I think the, the rebalance or pivot is proceeding in fits and starts, to be honest. And part of that is we got a lot of domestic issues, it's impossible to leave the Middle East and South Asia given what's going on now, and that's where the focus really is. And so you gotta, you gotta find time in other parts of the schedule to make sure that strategic focus comes from key senators. Very grateful for the team that came to Shangri-La. Very much noticed by friends in the region as a whole. I think the administration has done a pretty good job in trying to make clear that this is where our future lies, but we're gonna have to do much more. I agree with you about sequester, I'd like to see much more active diplomatic engagement generally. Uh, um, really, at the base of much of this, I know we focus mostly on the military dimension, but a lot of this is a diplomatic gain. We've got to be very effective in terms of how we pursue our interests. No American politician in the last 25 years have given a speech in America, in America, about why Asia is important. We have not tried to convince our American people about what we're about. There have been hundreds and thousands of speeches about Fallujah and Iraq and Afghanistan, all important, but no one has said, you know, this is why we engage, this is why we're out there. We give those speeches in Asia, we don't do them at home. So I think we have our work cut out for us, and we had at the beginning of this administration a little childish back and forth where some would say, we're back in Asia, and others would say, no, we'd never left. Senator Rubio, I would take a position that both are wrong. For us to be back in Asia is gonna take decades. It's gonna take multiple presidents, deep substantial engagement, and for those who say we never left Asia, the price of admittance has gone up dramatically. What used to pass for effective diplomacy and military engagement 15 or 20 years won't get it done, will not get it done today. Now, as we speak, we have two aircraft carriers in the Asia-Pacific region deployed. That should be a regular part of our engagement, not something that happens occasionally. So I commend you on the work that you've done to try to undo the sequester, and I also wanna see you continue your role of really focusing on the Asia-Pacific region. I'll do everything I can to support that. Thanks, Senator. Senator Ruby, I listened carefully to what you said. Um, I think one thing you perhaps are missing about the Chinese people is that they are, whether the Communist Party whips them up or not, uh, extremely uh, nationalistic and feel that China's destiny is much larger than what it currently is. They're, they believe that for the last 150 years, uh, they were uh, physically carved up by outside countries, uh, notably Japan, uh, but also a large number of European countries and, uh, and even, even the United States. Now they've become the second largest economy in, in the world. They've uh, They've uh, grown uh, tremendously and they feel, their, they feel their time has come. So, and they feel their time has come in a pretty crude way, which means that they should be the number one dog in their part of the world and everybody else should, uh, should, should adjust. So I think this is deeper than just the, uh, the Chinese Communist Party, which is, 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 is ruling them. And it's pretty understandable in terms, of, uh, in terms of their history. So I think what the United States does has, 
as to channel that uh, Chinese, uh, which I think is a national, uh, national uh, feelings and, uh, and, and desires by presenting military situations in which the, the costs of aggression are too high, channel that great Chinese energy, which we've seen in so many other countries, Chinese-American citizens here in the United States, Taiwan, Singapore, other, other very vibrant Chinese companies into an area in which they can make tremendous advances by their economic uh, prowess, by their, by their cultural uh, attainments, but just sort of set some military lines and say this far and no, and no further. Then I think we can move forward uh, properly. Admiral, and I agree with you on the nationalistic and on their view of history. The last hundred years has been an aberration, and, and I, I understand all of that. I would, and, and I don't disagree with your statement about that being a powerful sentiment in China. I would only add that the, uh, I think the people in Korea, the people in Japan, have their own ambitions for the future, and it is not to be a tributary state to China. And I would also add that I, I want, I think I want China to be prosperous. I would love to have them as a partner on all these major issues we confront around the world. Imagine what a responsible Chinese government in the U.S. could do on issues of global jihadism and so forth. Uh, I can tell you what's going to be a big problem, and that is if that nationalism leads them to continue to steal secrets from our companies and our military in order to cut corners, if they aggressively act to take over international waters, and if they do to other places what they've done to Hong Kong. And, uh, or what they do now on the gross human rights violations. If they treat their own people that way, just imagine what they would do to other people that they gained any sort of power and control over. And that cannot happen. That would be a major, major problem. I, I think we're in violent agreement there, Senator. Right. Thank you, Senator Rubio. And uh, we're uh, coming up on the time where we're going to have to adjourn. I just want to, again, reiterate something that Senator Rubio mentioned, actually, is uh, when he was talking about uh, China being a participant in UNCLOS and talking about how can we trust China in anything they sign because of their defiance of uh, the law that they agreed to. But I think in many respects, we have a moment where the United States is going to be asked the very question, that very question by our allies. Uh, if China continues to, um, to violate uh, the Philippines, this ruling, and other claimants um, uh, in the area, then the question our allies in the region will once again pose to the United States is how can we trust anything that you say uh, when you're not willing to um, come to our aid to back up uh, what you have agreed to us with. And that's why it's so important that we continue to uh, reiterate and reinforce our expressions of mutual defense and uh, the mutual alliances that we have together, whether that's uh, the Philippines, whether that's Japan, China, Korea, Japan, uh, Korea Taiwan, it's very important that we uh, continue to show our allies that we are committed uh, to not just say that we will abide by them, but that we will indeed act uh, when called upon and as necessary and needed. Um, one of the things that I wanted to get into, though, is what next now for the Philippines? The ruling comes down, the tribunal comes down. What next? Where does President Duterte go? What, what happens with the Philippines now that they have this ruling? Admiral Blair, Admiral, Dr. Campbell, whoever prefers. I think that a, an equitable solution of the claims in the South China Sea uh, is going to be a long and difficult manner just because of the tangled nature of the claims there. If you look at an, an island of the Spratleys, uh, color-coded to show which country currently occupies what, it looks like a bad case of technicolor measles. As you know, they're all intertwined. And, uh, and the idea that, we can, that you can sort of say, well, okay, you move off to this island, you move off to this island, let's draw some nice lines is, is I think, uh, pretty, pretty impractical. I think that, um, I think that uh, it will take some imagination to come up with a multilateral uh, settlement of claims which gives China uh, a recognition of some of its legitimate claims, which are generally further north in the South China Sea, which sort of, which sort of uh, uh, divvies up the, uh, the Spratleys in an equitable uh, format. I think that um, things like internationalization of some islands, which can be used by all. I think things like uh, joint development areas in which the, any fishing uh, activities and hydrocarbon development is, uh, is uh, it, the, the revenues are divided up among the, uh, the states. I think uh, further work on turning the uh, doc Declaration of Conduct back in 2002 into a code of conduct in which there are peaceful expectations on, on all sides. I think that's the work of, uh, that's the work of, uh, years, and, but I think underlying that has to be what we've been talking about here for the last hour, which is a, a recognition by China that it cannot gain by military aggressive coercive means 
uh, what, it, what it wishes, and that has to do with the, the recent stiffening of American policy with smart policies by the, the, other, the other countries uh, and presenting that uh, more united affront to China. ASEAN, uh, ASEAN's role has been mixed. Uh, sometimes they've, uh, they've not done much, but other times they have, uh, they have uh, pulled uh, themselves together and, and made some, uh, and, and made some uh, unified statements, which I think are, are positive. So it's that steady combination of military deterrence, patient diplomacy, imaginative uh, negotiations, uh, which I think uh, the claimant states, starting with the Philippines, uh, including Vietnam, Malaysia, ought to, ought to pursue. I, I very much feel, uh, Chairman Garner, this is a, a movie, not a snapshot, and, uh, and we, we have to do a lot of work to have the movie have a, the right ending. Dr. Campbell, I would just ask you to follow up on that, but also uh, perhaps to throw in a little bit what you've heard from the other claimants in the area, what they might pursue now that this tribunal has ruled, if anything. Thanks very much. Um, Senator Gar, just to respect to the last question, I, I will say honestly, I think the, the ruling so exceeded what was expected. I think if you read previous tribunal decisions, sometimes it's hard to make out exactly what was decided and there was a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, so in my view, um, I, I guess I agree with Admiral Blair to this question about, oh, they must have anticipated this. I don't think anyone in the region anticipated this really is clear as a bell in terms of animating some very important strategic purposes. So I don't think anyone was thinking about, gee, what do we do now in international law um, uh, in advance of this um, ruling? So I think there's gonna be a lot of important conversations that will take place in the coming months and we should encourage this. And remember, this initial decision to go to The Hague was encouraged by a number of countries uh, including the United States. I, I would say I like the idea of imaginative solutions. We do have a few areas where countries have been able to share resources. The agreement between Taiwan and Japan on fishing was very important. There have been efforts to try to do this with China in the past. Usually you get down the line and then China says, well, of course, we'll share some of these resources, but this is, of course, our territory, which then is a non-stopper, or is a showstopper. The idea is to be able to uh, take advantage of resources in circumstances where sovereignty and territoriality are not resolved, are not clear. I think the general point to recognize here is that in diplomacy, there are areas that cannot be immediately resolved and that the best you can do is to have everyone kind of cooler heads uh, uh, prevail and then export some of these problems into the future where hopefully circumstances have been better, will be better. China's practice in under that rubric to basically salami slice uh, is really not in our best strategic interest. So we're gonna have to be watching that carefully as we go forward, building capabilities. I mean, one of the things that I'm most proud of and that really has taken place is that there is a renaissance in the relationship between the United States and the Philippines. Uh, the Philippines are incredibly important in our own country, um, but we, uh, ever since we left the base, we had about 20 years of very little, little strategic engagement. That has changed now. The U.S. military is re-embracing their, their, their uh, comrades. Politically, the United States is less explosive in the Philippines. I think there's a recognition across the political spectrum that they want a better relationship with us. We have a you know a legal instrument in which American forces can now deploy and act there beyond the visiting forces agreement. These are all important steps, but I think the general recognition, Senator, is that we all look for immediate responses. This is, Asia is the long game. Asia is the long game. And so two years ago when this legal process started, people poo-pooed it. It's not important, it's too slow, it won't deliver the goods. And look at where we sit today a substantial development, which I think will animate the actions of many countries around the region. And despite this very assertive stance on the part of the Chinese, I can tell you behind the scenes, this has caused real concern about the conduct of their own strategy, and there will be those carefully that will be arguing for readjusting going yeah. forward. Final question. Uh, should China, and actually Senator Cardin is here, I've been going along, do you have any additional questions for this panel? <laughs> Final question, uh, should China proceed uh, to the Scarborough Shoal or perhaps uh, blockade of the Philippines uh, ship 
uh, or action on the second Thomas Reef, what should the U.S. action or response be? If I can just make one preliminary point, uh, Senator Gardner, we, of course, have a obligation to allies and partners, but, uh, you know, allies and partners are perfectly ready to fight to the last American, and we need to uh, make sure that, you know, we don't want something more than they want it themselves uh, in terms of their actions uh, and all. So I, it's a, and I, th I think particularly important for, you know, you responsible members of Congress to make sure that uh, this is not the United States uh, doing things that uh, allies uh, should be and, uh, and friends and partners should be working on themselves. It's got to be work, work together and we need to be aware of that. Uh, on Scarborough Shoals, I think if, uh, if China lands, uh, lands troops, brings in dredges, uh, we should remove them uh, in support of the, the Philippines uh, with military force uh, if, if, if necessary. On uh, on Second Thomas uh, Second Thomas Shoal, I think the situation is a, a little bit less uh, less clear, and I would uh, I'd rather speak in a classified session about that one. Very good, thank you, Dr. Campbell. Campbell quickly, yeah, like look, I, I'll just um, I'll just add to that. Look, I, we have a strong security relationship with the Philippines. Uh, the conduct of our private diplomacy has become much more effective in the last couple of years. And uh, I would anticipate that we will make very clear that we will stand with the Philippines. Um, I, I do want to say that the most important diplomacy about to happen is the diplomacy between the Chinese and the Philippines, right? And so uh, that, in many respects, is a positive sign, the fact that the Chinese are reaching out. They want to see what kind of relationship. We've had our own private conversations with Duarte, with the, pres the new president, and we'll see how this uh, plays out over time. But I think... Chinese have to understand that if they take the steps that the Admiral indicates, it will have a chilling effect across Asia and will undermine their interests in a way that no other action that China has taken in the last generation would. Thank you. Senator Parker. I just have one final question, if I might. And I don't want to get into a debate on the merits of the Law of the Sea Treaty and Congress's Senate's ratification. I've already expressed myself. I'm a strong supporter of it. I think the United States hurt itself by not ratifying the treaty. But I would like to just ask the narrow question as to the impact of us not being a member of the Law of the Sea as it relates to the um, uh, uh, repercussions of China not uh, following the Law of the Sea and the United States' active engagement on this issue as not being a member of the, uh, of the treaty. Can I just... At, answer on that, and I appreciate, Senator Cardin, your leadership uh, on uh, efforts at the Law of the Sea. It, it's, you know, the Law of the Sea efforts over almost 30 years now, it's a little bit like Gallipoli, kind of run along the beach with the machine gunners there. Um, uh, we got, we've gotten close a couple of times. I'll tell you an interesting thing, and I won't go into names, but at the last go-round, uh, second to last, we tried this a few years ago, um, uh, I was asked to testify. Um, some senators asked questions about a ruling like the one we had yesterday, and what if it then impinged on American interests very much in the way that what has just taken place with China. So the concern was that we would sign ourselves onto a treaty where potentially an international group could rule on something that would impinge on our own sovereignty, right? Which is what China has given, ha, uh, has just experienced. I would say personally, if we want to focus on the Asia Pacific going forward, we're going to have to find a way to pass the law of the sea because it does hurt us and it is striking to us that the Chinese have signed uh, and they're obligated uh, but don't want to do it. We have not signed but want them to do it, right? So it's, uh, it's ironical to many in the region. The, what, what, what concerns us, though, is I'm not sure what in the world could get 67 votes in the Senate now, right? I mean, may, if we put in something on motherhood, we'd get maybe 62, 63. But there would be those that would raise real questions. We've gotten a lot of our bills passed by over right. 67. We're, we're, our committee has a good record on it. <laughs> I don't think we would. Um, We'll see how we would do on that. Might might be a challenge. I, I would add, uh, Senator, that uh, to me the the biggest advantage of us joining the law to see would be to oppose the Chinese reinterpretation of what uh, the rights of a country with an EEZ are. Mm -hmm. uh, China is 
is methodically, over time, attempting to, attempting to give tremendous uh, rights to EEZ countries to restrict military activities in, in a way that would be complete, completely counter to U.S. interests. And right now, we have to rely on our friends who have signed the treaty, Japan, the United Kingdom, other strong maritime nations, to carry the, our water for us inside that treaty instead of providing the leadership uh, Mm -hmm. uh, we, we can, so I, I think it's absolutely vital. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Senator Menendez, I think, is participating in the next hearing as well, so uh, uh, that is the final, final question for you. Uh, I want to thank the, the witnesses for being here today. Uh, thanks to everyone for attending today's hearing, and uh, for the information of members, the record will remain open until the close of business Friday, including for members to submit questions for the record. Please respond as promptly as possible, and your responses will be made a part of the record. With the thanks of the committee, this hearing is now adjourned, and we will begin and we will proceed to the next hearing.